November 19th, 2017, and you're listening to The Lit Review, a literary podcast for the movement. My name is Monica Trinidad, and thank you for tuning in. Before we dive into episode 34, we're excited to announce that we now have two sponsors. This podcast is now sponsored by the Critical Studies MA program at the Pacific Northwest College of Art. Because we need to talk, read, interrogate, intervene, and reimagine like never before. For more information or to apply, visit pnca.edu. And as always, special shout out to our first sponsor, the Arca Center for Social Justice Leadership, an initiative out of Kalamazoo College whose mission is to develop and sustain leaders in human rights and social justice through education and capacity building. In this episode, we'll be speaking with the magnificent youth worker Hilda Franco, based in the Pilsen neighborhood. Hilda will be diving into the book Pedagogy of the Oppressed by Paulo Freire, written in 1968. Hello, you're listening to The Lit Review, a literary podcast for the movement. My name is Monica Trinidad, and I am here with Paige May. Um, and a very special guest today. I, I think we introduce our podcast all the time with a very special guest because everybody is so special, like everyone's special. So that's how we do it here. So today we are talking about the book uh, Pedagogy of the Oppressed by Paulo Freire. 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 Ah, see, I thought I was going to do it and then I didn't. So this book um, was something that I read in college, which was about 10 years ago. Ooh, showing my age. Um, And it is an essential reading. Um, And we're going to talk with the amazing Hilda Franco, uh, who is here with us today. Yay! Even though... Hilda's very sick, and we're so sorry, but we appreciate you for being here. Um, Hilda is a youth worker, is based in Pilsen, and is just all-around amazing badass. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you, ladies. Um, Excited to be here. Yay! We're going to start out with what we always ask our guests, and that's uh, who are you, what do you do, and why? So like you said, my name is Hilda Franco, uh, based out of Pilsen, born and raised. And what I do is, is I identify as a cultural worker, a youth worker. Um, in terms of how institutionally, how do I make my money? Uh, <laughs> I Right now I'm a consultant for the Student Voice Committee at the Chicago Public Schools. Um, and what they do is that, what I do is that I ensure that young people go through a critical curriculum in order to identify issues in their school and create actions. Um, so I'm expanding my capacity from teaching and, and youth work to also working with teachers mm-hmm. um, and educators who want to do action work and activism work. Um, so part of that is that I'm trying to shift the paradigm of educators. Um, and I think that this book is very relevant to that in thinking of themselves as agents of change while they're actually developing agents of change. Um, so that I think that's more work, convincing an educator that they're an agent of change um, than a student. But it's, it's great work, um, and on top of that, I do tons of consulting for other not-for-profits and educational institutions. So it's been a really interesting year mm-hmm. for me. Um, but yeah, that's what I do. Mm-hmm. Why? Why do I do it? Oh, because adultism is real. Uh, a big part of my background is that I have worked at the Freedom School when uh, it first started, and we talked a lot about identity and oppression and adultism, and it was very true to my heart. As a young person, born and raised in Pilsen, went to the public school system my whole life, um, I felt very treated like I was incapable. Um, But I felt like I was as a teenager. Uh, I went to um, Carleton College as a private school, got a posse scholarship. I knew where I was going. I knew what I was doing. I knew what I wanted with my life. And so many people treated me as if it was a phase, Mm -hmm. as if I was still um, had to explore and I was incapable. And when I learned about adultism, um, it was very true to my life and have dedicated a lot of my work to making sure that young people feel capable, Um, young people learn how to love themselves, Uh, particularly because adultism is so real. So many young people talk about they can't wait to be 18, they can't wait to be 21, they can't wait to not live in their parents' homes. And that, to me, is such a sign of the oppression that exists among young people, that they hate who they are at this very moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's very sad to me because being young is temporary and that's a, something you don't get back. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I do this work because I think that young people 
are the group that is um, oppressed across the world. And it's the only form of oppression that we all go through from being oppressed to the oppressor. And it's very easy to forget um, how we have transitioned into that. So I do this work to ensure that young people have a space in the world um, and enjoy being young. So part of my own academic and research, I'm getting a master's in history, is about age consciousness and really looking into historically where does this idea come from? Um, why do we treat young people the way we do? Um, and how is this correlated to education and, and liberatory work? So I'm really fascinated by age and age consciousness and how we came up with this idea mm -hmm. of what the adult is and what the child is and how that's so similar to the oppressions that we experience from sexism to racism, um, the way we treat women, the way we treat people of colors as if they're children. Mm -hmm. um, so that, and we don't talk about that, right? It's like, why do we treat children like that? Um, so that's why I do the work that I do is I think that it's important for young people and for activists to understand that age consciousness and, and the idea of age is very real um, and is, it is oppressing young people in ways that contribute to the system that exists. Yeah. Yeah. I'm having um, a cool moment right now yes. because I, so there, there's several really important foundational moments in my own politicization, just sort of like life story. Uh, one of which is I went, uh, when I first moved to Chicago, or first uh, came to Chicago on this fellowship, um, I went to a Rev Up training that yes. you led, um, and Mia, who we're going to talk to later. Uh, and that I, I reflect back on that workshop over and over and over again. It's something that I'm still learning from and something that uh, I learned from and that I try to create echoes of it or like a ripple effect of it, right, and try to create spaces like that for other folks as well because it was extremely profound. It was the, the first time that I really got to think through adultism. Um, and I, at the time, I was 21, so I was like yeah. transitioning into that, right? Um, it was really, really important, and they still offer that training folks should go. Also, <laughs> the other one that I'm thinking about right now is when I got to spend six months studying abroad in Brazil. Mm -hmm. um, and so Paulo Freire is a Brazilian writer mm -hmm. um, and thinker and educator. Um, and I, I'm... I can say more, I, you know, another time I can talk a lot about my own experiences there, but it was, uh, I was able to, the, Brazil is home to the largest social or movement organization in the world, the Landless People's Movement. It has one and a half million members, comp uh, um, you know, uh, rural farmers, mostly in the Amazon. Um, and Brazil was, at the time of this, I, I, I'm wondering if you can kind of contextualize this book a little bit for us, um, but it's, it's significant to me, Brazil is a home to Pedagogy of the Oppressed, which is one of the most reference books I see in our movement spaces, mm -hmm. as well as the um, the thinker behind the theater of the oppressed as well comes from Brazil. And I, I think there's, there's a lot to learn from the struggle uh, and resistance movements that were taking, that took place in Brazil. I mean, you have in Bahia's incredible slave rebellion, so much rich, rich, rich history there that we should tap into. Um, but can you talk a little bit more about what was happening um, in the 60s through the 80s from what you know? And, and it's just to help us understand how important and um, significant this book is, you know, because it what he this was happening in a really oppressive environment. Yeah. So while there there was there's a lot of history here about the '60s and there's a cultural revolution. It, it was happening in Latin America um, in very in a very deep way. I think that Latin America has a very rich history of resistance um, from the ground up. And it wasn't just in Brazil that these revolutions were happening. And, and oftentimes, uh, when I sit in academic settings, there's lots of academics that will read things like there was campesinos that were 12 years old joining um, you know, a, a socialist, communist movement and were willing to die for, for such beliefs. And to them, you know, as academics you know, at the top, sitting in a, in a desk, having these kinds of conversations, they don't fathom the idea of being 12 years old or 13 years old and having the ability to commit to something that is to them so big and so important and so drastic. Um, and one of the things to me as, as someone who you know is a descendant of Latin America and identifies as indigenous is that when you are oppressed, you don't have to read that much to understand what it takes to be free. Um, so for me, I think thinking about the context of Latin America is that there's dictatorships during this time period. Um, a lot of these dictatorships have been put into place by our own government in the United States of America. Um, there's, there's tons of really investment from the World Bank as well as the IMF. Um, so we're talking about 
creating a huge gap between the rich and the poor during this time period and establishing institutions so that they're kept that way. Uh, so what's happening in not just Brazil, but in Chile and in Guatemala and in Nicaragua and in Mexico during this time period is that the students and the young people in particular and the campesinos and the women um, are taking up arms and are taking it upon themselves um, to resist what was, what was happening during this time period. And someone like Paulo Freire was part of this movement, not just in writing something like Pedagogy of the Oppressed, but was doing something very fundamental, which was literacy programs. And a lot of his theories and work come from being an organizer in communities where people couldn't read. Um, and essential to freedom for him was not just teaching people how to read, but the power of literacy and where that comes from on a historical standpoint. For many, many years, people of color, people who are poor, and if we even want to talk about it in terms of Europe and, and monarchies, the church did not allow people to read, right? Women were not allowed to read. So there's something very fundamental about literacy that is denied to people, and there's a reason for that. Um, there's, a, there's a power in reading and in literacy that happens in our brains and in our development that I think people at the top understand um, and for many years have denied certain people of it. So a lot of his understandings of ensuring that the oppressed understand their positionings but also know how to get free stems from his own uh, work with literacy programs. And although there's lots of poverty and um, there's lots of lack of access to healthcare in Brazil at this time, um, even housing, like lots of people didn't have real homes during this time period, he focused on literacy. And a lot of people would argue like you should be giving them healthcare, you should be doing direct service work. Um, and you know, fundamentally, if, if we read the text, it's, it's not necessarily, it's about service work if you're gonna get free. Um, it's about human development, it's about humanizing a person, it's about teaching how to do that. Um, so for him, literacy was the entry point for the work that he wanted to do in Brazil. And I think he's gotten a lot of criticism for it. Um, but he, he has led so many of us to really thinking about literacy in a different way. Mm -hmm. So especially for me, I think about it in a very different way because of him, mm -hmm. for sure. Yeah, and you know, when I remember reading this book in, um, in college, and I remember it really taught me a lot about how to break down hierarchies in classrooms, for example, right? It taught me about even just like the physical space and how to, how to, how to be in circle with each other and how mm -hmm. to break down um, that sort of like, I have the knowledge and you don't, you know? And like, it, it really broke that down for me and I really appreciated that. Can you sort of tell me about the moment that you were in when you first read this book, um, that moment in your life, um, what led you to read it and um, how did it affect you? I was also in college, I was a senior, and I, I think it was the, the highest point of my politicization. Um, I was on a predominantly um, middle to high class institution, um, was one of the very few brown people on that campus. Now they have more. <laughs> Back then I was one of like 22, like real talk. Um, it was rough, but, and, and for me, choosing to finish college was, it was not an option I was gonna finish. And I told myself if I was going to finish at this institution, I was going to do it kicking and screaming and fighting the whole way. Um, so part of that was the commitment of not just finishing my, my bachelor's in history and writing a thesis, but also politicizing myself. And part of that was looking at something like Pedagogy of the Oppressed was you know, the book that you should read. I was told by so many people, right? Um, so in reading it, it, it was not difficult for me to read. I think because as someone who was already thinking about a lot of these ideas on campus and feeling like the oppressed in an institution. Um, but I think that what really pushed me and, and inspired me about this book was the reality that this was historical and that my experience is not isolated and that the work is um, something that is continual. And I think what I took from it the most was what he talks about in terms of praxis. Um, was that this is not this is not the beginning and this is not the end. This is um, something that is cyclical, and that me reading this book is only going to push me in the direction of wanting to not just do the work, but wanting to change myself over and over and over again. Which which to me is what what praxis is is a continual form of reflection and action um, that doesn't end. And the moment that we stop living in praxis is when we've stopped living true to what he says. Is, is true to liberating ourselves and liberating those who are oppressed. 
Can you define praxis for us? Um, and can you also define uh, pedagogy? Yes. So pedagogy is the, a theory of, of a way of learning. Um, it's, a, it's an idea, it's a paradigm, it's a way of learning. Um, so when he talks, when he entitled this Pedagogy of the Oppressed, it's, it's a theory about how people become oppressed. And at the end, he discusses how we actually can liberate ourselves through our own analysis of how we became oppressed, and that's praxis. Praxis is a cycle of trying to unpack what we already know, why we already know it, um, how do we refine that understanding by doing some research? And the research is not necessarily academic. It's observation. It's asking your parents questions. It's eth ethnography. It's, um, it can be so many things. So, and and when, we, when I was teaching at Rudy Lozano's an alternative social justice high school, we talked about um, praxis in, in four categories. Unlearning, um, unpacking is the first stage. Uh, the second stage is refining and, and including research and facts. Um, and then the third stage is action. So what do you do with this new knowledge, this new information? How do we change? How do we do something? And then the final stage is hope. Um, hope, where, do, where does the hope come from? Where does the reflection come from? How did this make you feel from what we thought we knew to changing what we know? Um, and the cycle starts all over again, right? Uh, so for me, teaching is very much praxis. So <laughs> I teach in this framework. Um, I use it in everything that I do from trainings to um, teaching a history lesson. So it's it's formative in my teaching and it's also formative in my day-to-day -day thinking about my own life in terms of praxis. Um, so when he talks about praxis, he's really talking about a reflection learning process that we're all capable of doing. And I think it's one of the most important tools for organizers and people working in the movement in order to unpack and unlearn the system that has been internalized within ourselves. Um, and I think that we can learn more about what exists in, in the world and in our society from ourselves because we've already internalized it. We're already living it. We're already thinking in these paradigms. Um, we're already replicating these power structures mm -hmm. within ourselves even and, and the way that we're hard on ourselves. Um, so what Praxis is is trying to learn about where that came from and why we have it. And you know, and how do we start to unravel some of that so that we can be something different? Mm -hmm. um, because one of the hardest things that he talks about is praxis is scary to the people of the oppressed. Because, and I see it all the time with young people in cognitive dissonance. And you know, I don't want to be oppressed. I don't want to be called poor. Or as a woman, I don't want to say that I that I have less power than men, right? Like there's a there's definitely some some anger that comes with that of positioning yourself as the people who are oppressed. Um, but if you don't really put yourself in that position, then you will never really understand how it has influenced your life. Um, so I, I think that it is one of the essential tools for us to really learn as activists, as people, as agents of change, uh, how we can liberate ourselves and how this world exists. It exists within us. Um, so I think the best teacher is ourselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, beautiful. So can you, um, let's dive into the book. It's, yeah. it's four chapters. Um, I, I even love the table of contents because it even gives you a little summary of each chapter, right? Yes. But in your own words, mm -hmm. what, what's happening? What is, what is he teaching us and talking through? So in the first chapter, he, he lays it out. He lays out why do we need a pedagogy of the oppressed. And, and essentially, he explains that there is a system of oppression. There, there is a system that takes place where there are the haves and the have-nots which is very much in the vein of, of Marx and, and um, Weber and uh, reaches a lot of, of Hegel. I don't know if, if people know who Hegel is. He's a, he's a uh, history philosopher. He's one of, one of the very few people actually that they make historians read, e even though I think he's amazing. Um, so he reaches into a lot of those ideas in order to explain that there is a system of inequality and that the system of inequality exists within ourselves and why we need to understand uh, where it comes from and how we can change it. So the first chapter is very much just explaining the systems at B um, and why they're at B. And the second chapter is more of, I think the most popular chapter is the banking chapter where we talk about education itself and how edu the education system is a vehicle for a system of inequality. Ultimately, he's making that argument by explaining how the system of education does that how the system of education actually is replicating the inequality that exists in our society. 
historically over and over and over again. He really is telling us that if we want to change the world, we have to change the way we teach. We have to change the way our schools exist. Um, and talking about that in the sense of banking, this idea that the student coming in is learning from the teacher, as opposed to it being mutual and, and dialogical, um, and something that is communal. He argues that that's really what is needed for people who are oppressed to liberate themselves. Um, otherwise, you're replicating the same paradigms of inequality. The third chapter is one of my favorites, and I think it's the least discussed and, and I think understood, um, where he talks about how. How do we do that? Um, and he talks about generative themes. And I think a lot of people get confused about generative themes. And I think it's because it's theoretical in the sense that as humans, we, have, we, we exist in different forms of oppression. Um, but they're not isolated. They're actually intertwined and cyclical. So I think that in movement work, we're moving in that direction of seeing oppression intersect. Um, and that's the kind of stuff he's talking about. That we can say, you're oppressed because you're a woman. You're oppressed because you're young. Um, there's a system of inequality because of money and class. But that's not enough to liberate yourself. You have to be able to unravel that within the complex ideas of who you are and how they intersect with your life and daily life. Um, so generative themes to him are about creating relationships and are about developing um, humanizing spaces versus dehumanizing spaces, which is why he creates this, this concept of, of themes. So instead of just talking about racism, we should be talking about a theme that perpetuates racism, right? and looking at the intersections of that theme. Um, so that, that's something that I think is very essential in our work, is that we need to think about our work more in terms of themes as opposed to just issues. Because um, I know that, that that's like the Salinsky style of organizing, is issue-based and winning. Um, but there's so much more to an issue that I think he believes is part of the work. That it's not just enough to win a policy or win a campaign that it's about transforming a person within the process of campaigning. And that transformation doesn't happen without a generative theme. What are we choosing to do in this process or in this campaign? Um, he also talks about dialogue and the importance of dialogue and building those relationships. Um, I think that's the, the most damaging part of our society is not knowing how to build relationships. Um, and that's what oppression does, is that it creates these boundaries of labels and, and barriers and, um, you know, you belong here, segregation, discrimination. And the more that we do that, the more difficult it becomes to create dialogue. And that's his fundamental argument, is that dialogue is essential to the human development and to our humanizing existence in this world. And if we do not do that, then we are not getting rid of the systems that be. Um, so dialogue is so essential, so that means that the oppressed need to speak. Um, no one should speak for them. And even if it makes you uncomfortable, like as an educator, when I ask young people to speak about you know, domestic violence, they're going to have positions that are oppressive. They, to me, as an educator, when I walk into a classroom, I always remind myself that they, the way that they behave is not them. The way that they treat me is not them. They're really living a prescription, as, as he says, right? That there's a prescription that's been given to them by the oppressed system and the oppressor in order to sustain the, the places that we're in or the institutions that we're in. So for my young people, if they come in and they're talking about certain women in certain ways, um, and even women themselves try to separate and say, you know, there are these kinds of women, there's the good girl versus the bad girl, right? I have to remind myself that this is not who they are. This is the prescription that they are living out. And in order for them to understand that that's a prescription they're living out, they have to talk about it. And that's what I do in my classroom, is I get them to see that the oppression exists within them, that they actually are the ones replicating it, that they're the ones upholding it, that we don't have to be chained up anymore physically, um, that it's a very colonized mentality. So really what, um, in that chapter, he talks about how do we use a different framework of educating in order to decolonize the mind. Um, and decolonizing the mind is very scary <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> because yeah. what he says, and, and it's, a, it's really important to talk about that because um, you can get woke, but it can be scary because once you're free, he argues 
there is no platform or plan for what it's like to be free. You have to make it. And that's really scary for people who've been living a prescription their entire lives, where when you, you go to school, this is where you go. And then from there, you do this job. And then from that, you do this. Um, so it's a very much already prescribed life for people, of the, people who are oppressed. So when you try to dismantle that, what's next, right? Like, I, I'm not following this prescription. I'm free. So who am I now? You have to make that. You have to decide that. And that's really scary. Freedom is really scary for people who've never been free. Um, so sometimes it can go in another direction where it can be damaging, um, where it can fall into repetitive ideas of power that are the same, but you know, as he says, they're like false generosity. Um, it's not very real. Um, that's something I, I do want to talk about. He talks about this concept of false generosity and that um, both the oppressed and the oppressor can fall into very quickly. And that's something that I talked about, about my, with my young people in classrooms all the time, is that we have to be very cognizant of false generosity that exists in our society, where we think that it's part of our existence of being free, but it's actually a replication of the systems that be. So an example of that can be something like the welfare system. Um, it's a Band-Aid solution for something that's like, well, at least you have that, um, but it's not a solution for what's really happening, right, in that poverty and there's classism and you live in a capitalist society. So this concept of welfare is actually uh, false generosity from the oppressed, from the oppressor, right? The oppressor stating, well, at least you have this, we're helping you, right, do this. Uh, but it's a false generosity in the vein of, of Paulo Freire's ideas because you're not solving for the real solution of the issue. Um, so I think that that's a really important thing that we need to think about as organizers, is that if we're organizing for false generosity, or are we organizing to eradicate the issue at the root? Mm -hmm. um, because we're very much inclined in American society to have lots of false generosity handed to us as if the solution has been fixed. Mm -hmm. um, and that's not the case in, in, in the United States and, and across the world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, you're making me think a lot about power, um, and I'm wondering how this book talks would talk about or how this book would inform uh, youth-led organizing, right? Um, I know in our spaces we talk a lot about how critical it is to, um, to, to take leadership from those that are most directly impacted, um, centering those, right? Sometimes I'm like, what do you mean by centering? Um, do, are you really, like, do you know what that means? Or are you just saying that because that's what people say? Um, so I am just wondering how this book um, would, in, would inform youth-led organizing. This book led me to really dedicate myself, my life, my work, my, my academics um, to young people in particular because I do think that they are um, the identity in our society and across the world that has historically been ignored um, as being capable and, and the center of work. Um, so when we teach, when we create these schools, we're creating schools for young people, but we're not including them in the decision making of their education of their lives, of what they want to gain. Um, I mean, we don't have those conversations with them at all. And to me, when we're talking about centering this work, Pedagogy of the Oppressed, to young people, is that young people have to be capable of understanding what it means to be young, what it means to be them, um, and what they can do as a young person. I think that, that taking ownership of their identity is really important in terms of doing youth work and youth organizing. Um, because I think so much of young people are are told that it's a temporary stage and you should really prepare yourself to be an adult. So you have th this divide between the young people who are acting like adults, and we respect those leaders, and then the young people who don't act like adults and we see as need to be you know maintained, need to be dependent, need to be told what to do, um, because they're not replicating the power dynamics of the adult and the youth. So if you don't act adult-like, if you're not mature, if you're not responsible, if you're not um, behaving within these power dynamics, then we very much see young people as incapable of participating in their own um, life and in their own struggle and in their own change. So I think for me, centering a young person is asking them to be the center of their own learning of who they are. Like I think that's the most important part, is how do you teach a human to learn from who they are 
And for me, that's the fundamental goal in working with young people, not just graduating them and ensuring that they have you know, liberated mind, decolonizing the mind. For me, it's you're gonna grow up in this society. It's not going anywhere. So how do I ensure that you have the strategic thinking skills to learn from yourself in the world that you live in? Because you're going to change as much as the world around you is changing. So for me, that's what's crucial, is giving them those thinking tools, um, as well as the self-love. I think being oppressed, um, and I say this us, right, because as, as an oppressed person, is that it's very, very easy to fall into the dynamics of internalizing the oppression and feeling like you're not enough and feeling like what you're doing is not enough. Um, and I see that among young people over and over and over again, is that they often feel like they are not enough. Um, so how do I convince them that they are enough and that just by engaging their own experiences, they're doing more work than any other person around them? Um, and that's, for me, the goal is young people are going to be adults. What kind of adults do I want to see in this world? And for me, it's I want to see adults that can love themselves, who can love others, who can liberate not just their own minds, but can liberate others through the way they treat people. Uh, for me, that's the fundamental point of social justice, the way you treat people. It's great if you win campaigns. It's great if you read a lot. It's wonderful to see people right, advocate for the oppressed in so many ways. Um, but if you don't know how to treat people humanely, um, I don't think you're doing the work. I think that's the fundamental work of social justice. And what, what Fred is talking about is that we have to analyze ourselves as humans um, and what humanizing looks like. And that oftentimes we've been taught humanizing is actually dehumanizing. Um, so for me, that's the most important part is how do I humanize my young people so that they can model in the future and humanize themselves and humanize others around them. I think that's the most important goal of working with young people is thinking of, as a youth worker, what kind of adult do you want to see and how do you get there is how you do the work today. So making sure that young people feel loved and present today, being young, not when they're 21, not when they're 18, not when they get their degree, right? Um, and, I, and I think as a youth worker, we, we forget that these young people grow up and that when they grow up, the work doesn't end. Mm -hmm. For me, it doesn't end. Like just because they graduated, just because they are not in my program anymore, um, doesn't mean that I'm not there for them anymore and that they don't have questions and that they're not stuck. Um, I mean, I have a group of 14 year olds now that went back to school and, and are very, uh, oh my God, Hilda, no one gets it. No one sees that oppression is real. And you know, and they have all these questions and, and where do they go after that? So it's not enough to just teach young people how to get free, but we still have to coach them in ensuring that they know how to continue their own liberation and their own decolonizing of their mind. Um, because I feel like that's also responsible as an adult to kind of be like, this exists and we're gonna get free and it's important to get free. And then you know, they get older and they're still stuck and they still need mentors and they still need support. Uh, and I'm not saying that I'm an expert because I'm not, because I'm still doing it. I'm still right, like, <laughs> you know, letting go of some of the internalized oppression, the self-hate, the I'm not doing enough um, work. And I talk about that with them and I think that that's really refreshing for them to be around someone who says, I don't know everything, but I can tell you what I know. <laughs> um, so. Who doesn't like this book? Who do, who? Who is very uncomfortable reading this book and is most challenged by it? I think that there, there, um, there's been a 30-year anniversary recently, and, and Paulo Freire uh, recently passed away, so um, there's been more talk about it recently. And I, one of the things that I've, I've read is that there has been a long history of criticism from academics about this book. Um, whether it's that it's too academic-y or it's not academic-y enough. Um, the canon itself was definitely rattled by this book uh, because it is really positioning those in those positions of institutional power um, in a position of being the oppressor. And I think that makes people who identify as oppressed within that institution is really uncomfortable. Um, and I think that there's academics that would argue that it's not um, it doesn't fit the academic canon enough for it to be legitimate. Mm. And I think that the uncomfortability comes from the lack of understanding of what Fred is talking about. I don't think that if you are an oppressed person, 
it's easy for you to comprehend these ideas. Um, I think if you're an oppressed person, and, and I teach this in my classrooms when I was teaching philosophy, um, that you are going to understand what Fred is trying to say because he's speaking from and to the oppressed uh, position. So for the oppressed, reading something like this is a relief. Um, and for people who are the oppressor or who are positioned in, as the oppressor, it feels like an attack and it feels um, like they can't win because he does state in the first chapter that the oppressor can never be free unless the oppressed frees them. Mm -hmm. That when the oppressed are free themselves, they are able to free those who are in those positions of power. Mm -hmm. um, so the oppressor kind of is in this position of no agency. <laughs> when it comes to the system, and that is really uncomfortable for, for those who are in those positions. So in terms of, if we want to break it down in terms of identities, if you're a woman, the man will never be free unless the woman is free. And that makes men uncomfortable. <laughs> you know, because that means that their freedom is in the hands of a woman, right? And that's exactly what he's saying, is that there, that's the reason that you will never be free until you give up this idea that you yourself right is the person that can that can get free when it that's not the case we live in a system where that's not it um, so I think that makes people really uncomfortable uh, this idea that their agency or their freedom and their ability to not be in that position of the oppressor comes from when the, when the oppressed get free and I think people are confused by that because they don't understand that when the oppressed get free they're breaking the system at, at B and when you break that system at B, then there is no oppressor, <laughs> right? So that really confuses people and makes them uncomfortable and it's because you're so used to the paradigms that exist. And we're not used to, this is one of the things that I thought about a lot in college when I was reading this, is that we're so used to and being taught in the education system how to break things down. We know how to break things down. We know how to dismantle things theoretically and physically. Rebuilding is something different, mm -hmm. and we don't know how to do that, and we don't feel comfortable rebuilding something without a platform, without some previous history, without knowing that it existed before. So he's asking people to create something that doesn't exist, mm -hmm. and that is really scary. <laughs> like, yeah. I yeah. don't think yeah. that we, and, that, and he says that, that part of the system of the oppression is that it takes away from our creativity, from our agency, and from our ability to see into the future something that's unknown. Mm -hmm. And that's the, that's the system playing, exactly, playing out exactly what it needs to play out, is that it makes it difficult for us as a press to imagine something that doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. That's exactly what it wants to do. Mm -hmm. And I think for us, the work has to be um, imagining something that doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Speaking of things that don't exist, there is no perfect book, right? No. So do you have any critiques of this book? Are there things that are not in this book that you wish were in this book? What is the, what is, is there a, uh, it sounds like there's a gender analysis, but is there a, a race analysis, right? So like, um, yeah, what is not perfect about this book? There, there is, and I think because it's a theoretical book, he, do, he does not actually, I'm, I'm doing the comparing and making sure that there's like, you know, parallels to something we can understand. <laughs> but in, in the text itself, it's more theoretical. It's definitely very much in the, in the vein of, of reading something like Marx, um, right, where we're talking more, more theoretical about the oppressed versus the oppressor um, and how do we get free. But I do think that he does respond to what's missing from here. What's missing from here is love. And he, he does talk about it, and he does um, explain in Chapter 4 like how love is the liberation theory um, that needs to happen. But he does follow up with another book where it's Pedagogy of Hope, and he talks about love in this way because I think he himself realized years later this is what's missing from my theoretical work of understanding the oppressed and the systems that live is where does hope and love fall into liberation? Um, so I think that that's, when we talk about humanizing versus dehumanizing, what's missing is an in-depth analysis of where love and hope comes from or comes into play. Um, and hate, right? Hate and anger. Um, and he does follow up with a book where he talks about hope and love in, in this way. Um, but I think that that's the biggest critique for me is when I when I reread this was okay the love is missing the hope is missing um, but I know that he he did follow up years later with with it um, so 
yeah, it's hard. It's hard to for me to criticize it because as someone who's oppressed and you read it, it feels like he's talking about your life, <laughs> which is why I think a lot of people who who read it uh, in the movement are are moved by it um, because it speaks true to our lives and that it's you don't feel uh, so isolated. I think, and I think that's why he wrote it is that he didn't want people to feel like they're crazy <laughs> like, yeah. and that this is very real and that there's a way for us to get free. Um, and I don't think that he says that there is only one way, but I think he, he's trying to give us a, a paradigm of thinking about this work. So I think everyone that I know, I'm pretty sure, uh, received an education sort of framed by the banking method where they went to a, probably a K through 12 school where there was a teacher at the front of the room um, who was the expert and uh, like I love school, I did, uh, but it was, you know, the teachers would be at the front and they'd be like, so this is what you need to know and this is how you do it and then show me you can do it by doing this test. And I was good at that. And right. my brothers, not so much. They're way smarter than me, but they did not, they, that was not how they learned. Um, so I was always aware that there was something missing because I remember growing up and just being like, my brothers are, they're so much brighter than I am. Um, and they, but they just, you know, their grades said that they weren't, right? And, the, and, and that became a label, right? Uh, that, that limited their opportunities in so many ways. Um, and I, I bring this up because I, at the same time, like I didn't, I, when I was seven or no, when I was five, I didn't know how to read. And my teacher did know how to read. And I'm, I'm trying to, I, I think that some, I hear sometimes people talking about this book and they use it in ways that I think they, they where, where is the space for acknowledging when someone knows something that you need? Right, um, and what is the role of the teacher? Like, does this book say we need to abolish teachers, right, and classrooms? Because I, I think it's much more complicated than that. I, I don't it think is. it's fair to put on a five-year-old. You know how to read, right? Like, <laughs> or to put on an eighty-year-old. Like, you right. know what oppression is, and like, I, I, I think that the. And so, what is it actually saying about the role of teachers and facilitators? Um, because I think there's a little bit too much of a black and white mm -hmm. interpretation that I hear too often. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really great question because I, I don't think that he's asking for the abolishment of the educator. I think he's asking for a transformation mm -hmm. of the way we think about education um, and the way that we think about ourselves as beings um, and recognizing that we're all incomplete and that the only way we will be complete is if we do it together. Um, so I think changing the role of the teacher from the know-it-be-all to more of a facilitator is, is what he's advocating for, a cultural worker. Um, but I, I do agree with you that because we have this school system in place, that it is very difficult to reimagine what that looks like. Um, but I do think that, that he argues there is a role for us who do know things, mm -hmm. right? And that role is to inform, but at the at the expense of asking questions. So that's why like in terms of praxis, when you get to the refinement, we look at more of like the traditional knowledge that's out there. So for example, for me, if I'm teaching something and we're, we're unpacking, let's say we're unpacking um, gender norms and you know, we're talking about what is it like to be a girl? What is it like to be a boy? And that comes from the young people and they tell me and we, we look at like, damn, look at this. Like you already knew this, who taught you this? Did you learn this in school? No. Where did you learn it from? Parents, movies, right? They'll say all the things. Um, so getting them to understand that they're constantly learning without being in school mm -hmm. about who they are and how they replicate those things. So going into, well, where did, where did these gender norms come from, Hilda? Like, where, our parents didn't come up with it. These movies didn't come up with it, right? So let's look at the historical analysis of it. So that's where when I introduce the this is what patriarchy is, and this is, you know, we gotta look at religion and colonization, and let's look at some historical examples. Um, let's look at some statistics, right? Let, and that's where we start to teach them the more traditional modes of education, simultaneously learning the social political consciousness, right? Um, so I think that that's one of the things that teachers get confused about, and that's the work that I do, is, is trying to ensure that teachers see that it's not one or the other, it's both. Um, and that's difficult to, to see without practicing. Um, it's both. I think as an educator, you have to be able to do both. You have to give them the skills to be able to survive an education system that is still oppressive and hasn't been dismantled. Um, but at the same time, giving them the tools to really challenge it and to, to say, 
this doesn't work for me, right? Um, so for me, ethnography is really important. So like ethnographic studies, so having them uh, really learn how to observe because they're, they already know how to do that um, and refining those skills so that they can be translated into an academic classroom. Um, and being transparent about it. I'm very transparent with my students about, I didn't create this way of learning, but this is what the institution expects you to know, and this is how we're gonna learn it. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's really important as an educator is what he's talking about, is being transparent about the position you hold, what you're trying to do, um, and really making sure that it's about their education and not your ability to like, you know, for me, I don't, I don't care if they say that, oh, you're not that great of a teacher in this way or that way, because for me, the constituents are what matters, and that's my young people. Like, I know what my young people leave my classroom knowing, and that's what matters to me. Yeah. So I'm really curious how praxis can be utilized as a a liberation practice, right? How can we utilize um, all of the knowledge that's in this book? Some people might be like, well, you know, I'm an organizer and I do like, you know, anti-police violence work, but I'm not a teacher and I'm not a professor. So why should I read this book? Right. So why should we as organizers in any issue, right? And mm -hmm. in, in any multi-issue, why should we read this book? I think this book needs to be read by everyone, <laughs> whether they're organizers or not, or teachers, uh, because Paulo Freire is breaking down the systems that exist. He's breaking down power dynamics. He's breaking down um, liberation theory. He's breaking down how culture works um, within the, the ideas of the oppressed and the oppressor. So I think that if you're interested in doing any sort of people work, like if you're, if you're interested in working with people in general, and I think that that's everyone, uh, whether you're working at a grocery store and you're doing customer service uh, to, you know, the, the people who are doing the No Academy, right? I don't, I don't think that there is a, a genre of work or positioning of identity that doesn't fit this book. Um, because really what he's giving us is tools to think about ourselves within the world that we live in. And, and that's what's crucial, I think, about this book and why it's so popular and why, you know, 30 years later it's so relevant. Um, and so many, so many other people that we love today that are, are amazing writers um, really read this book, like even quote this book. You know, I, I think about the decolonizing indigenous work that I'm reading right now. So much of it comes from them reading Paulo Freire um, and, and re relating it to their own work as indigenous people in the United States of America, decolonizing and things like that. So I think that this book is essential for anyone who fundamentally wants to understand how to humanize themselves and how to humanize their work and how to humanize uh, what they want to do with their life. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that everyone should be reading this book in order to really break down uh, the power dynamics that exist in their own lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so praxis to, to me in terms of making that work in our society is that it has to happen within you. Um, I think that the praxis has to be a foundational tool for all the work that we do. So anything from, I don't know why I'm feeling this way about a partner, I think praxis can be used. <laughs> Honestly. And I do it with my young people, right? Like, um, someone's cheating on you. you know, let's unpack that. Let's refine what we know. Let's, let's, what do we do now that we know this knowledge, right? I've definitely done that with young people in order for them to understand how to use praxis. Um, so it can be anything from like a problem in your life to literally a, a big issue like, you know, we're, we're trying to ensure that our schools get funded as opposed to cops on the streets, right? So it is a formula that he argues is not the end it or be all, but that it is a formula that can help us uh, use reflection and action in a way that is productive. Um, so I think that praxis in itself needs to be something that we're using on a daily basis in our lives and in our work. So next time Debbie doesn't take out the garbage, I can be like, let's unpack this. Yes. Okay. Absolutely. Okay, great. Why Got do it. you feel this way? <laughs> let's do some research, refine the understanding. Now let's act. Yes. Yes. Okay. So um, I want to do a quick activity that I've done with a few people already. I actually, I don't even know if Paige likes it or hates it. She's probably like, <laughs> shut up. Okay. Um, so it's a word association game. So I'm going to say a word and then you're going to say the first thing, the first word that comes to your mind okay. when I say the word. Um, and I think this is really cool because it just shows like, you know, what, 
what how we're how we're thinking um, as very different people, but also you know what is still embedded in us. What do mm-hmm. we still think of when we hear that word, right? So, okay, the first word is culture, love, hope, react, humanizing, development, praxis, action, power. Um, a human abolition freedom survival strength liberation in our lifetime presence thank you i do have one more random question for okay. you <laughs> what um what does your classroom or workshop space look like uh yeah that's a good question so in in traditional classroom um there's there's definitely lots of art in the, on the walls uh lots lots of word walls uh working walls really with young people so as as we work we put things i put things on the wall um so that by the end of our semester or even at the end of our training we can kind of visually see the the growth of our knowledge um but usually i do a lot of circles i do a lot of circle work a lot of dialogue work um i ensure that when I was teaching, I ensured that there's a day uh, within the quarter, within the week. It depends on what's going on, where we're not we're not using any text, we're not using any anything related to the classroom. Um, we're bringing our bodies into the space and we're checking in on ourselves. Like, what's up? What's going on? What's going on in your life? Um, you know, what what did you do this week that you know improved your life? Like, um, for me, it's important to develop the person when I when I teach. Um, when I work when I work with young people, uh, so for me, my classroom looks more like a community center, I think, <laughs> than a traditional classroom. Um, the last space I had, we had a couch and we had a carpet, and there was a reading space, and mm-hmm. yeah, 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 yeah. So I I do think that we do have to change what a classroom looks like, and and I know that we're limited in school spaces, but if I had the money and I had the imagination, I don't think my classroom would look anything like a school. So yeah. And so with that, um, again, the book is Pedagogy of the Oppressed by Paolo Freire, our wonderful, brilliant guest, Hilda. Thank you for being here. This was fantastic. If you would close us out with your favorite passage. Yes, of course. Uh, Page 128, bottom of the page. Let me emphasize that my defense of praxis implies no dichotomy by which this praxis could be divided into a prior stage of reflection and a subsequent stage of action. Action and reflection occur simultaneously. A critical analysis of reality may, however, reveal that particular form of action is impossible or inappropriate at the present time. Those who, through reflection, perceive the infeasibility or inappropriateness of one or another form of action, which should accordingly be postponed or substituted, cannot thereby be accused of inaction. Critical reflection is also action. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Lit Review, a podcast where we interview people we love and respect about books for the movement. We are your co-hosts, Monica Trinidad and Paige May, two Chicago-based organizers. Special shout out to The Lit Review's very own sponsor, the Arcus Center for Social Justice Leadership out of Kalamazoo College. Keep your eyes and ears open for another episode next Monday, same time, same place. Want to hear about a specific book? Email us at thelitreviewchicago at gmail.com or find us on Facebook. And if you like this episode, give it a shout out on Twitter or Instagram. Our handle is at litreviewshy. Keep reading!